VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Yo. Technology. What is it all about? Ladies and gentlemen, Steve Steve Ballmer is famous for a few things. Running Microsoft for most of the 21st century, which helped make him the 20th richest man on the planet with a fortune of $32 billion at last count. He was also known for buying the Los Angeles Clippers basketball team for $2 billion in cash. And of course, for his off the charts intensity. I want to end with this song. Respectful, a song, It talks about what you've meant to me and what you've done for for me. You've made this the time of my, my life. He's a few years removed from those days of rousing the troops, though he can still be seen courtside at Clippers games, turning purple with rage or literally jumping up and down with excitement. I sat down with Balmer recently in his brand new offices of the Balmer Group on the 30th floor of a skyscraper in Bellevue, Washington. His corner office has sweeping views of the Olympic Mountains and Mount Rainier. We talk about Microsoft, basketball, and his latest endeavor. It's called USA Facts, a website he recently launched that is kind of an antidote to the fake news era. The site, which took three years to put together, takes all the spending data from local, state, and federal government over the past 30 years and puts it in one place that is understandable and searchable, with lots of charts to demystify the business of government. So we talk about why he did it and just what one does when you have more money than many small nations. Without further ado, here's Steve. On the theory that a good CEO finishes strong, I'd made absolutely no other plans while I was working, so I worked till my last day. Actually, the last couple weeks were, were a little soft, but until then, no time thinking really about what I'd go do. And then the question was, what does retirement really look like? And does that mean just playing golf? Because I am a golfer. Does it mean working with my wife on our philanthropic stuff? Does it mean teaching? People wanted to talk about writing a book. Uh, I did want to own a sports team. I made an early trip to see the Commissioner Goodell of the NFL as well as Commissioner uh, Silver. Uh, he if you had, had a, a preference, basketball Basketball. Or basketball there was right. no question it was my first right. first choice right yeah and through a variety of weird circumstances uh that worked out but as i was thinking about that i decided to teach class that was one of the first decisions i taught a class in strat as kind of leadership and value creation at stanford business school and my wife challenged me to get involved with her on our philanthropic work and i made some statement 
to the effect of the government does a very good job of really transferring wealth and focusing in on the poor and the old and the sick, and all we need to do is pay our taxes. And she kind of gave me a hard time about that. And I actually ran that even by a bunch of elected officials, and they said, oh, no, you got to be able to do something better than we would do with your money. And that got me really interested in government spending. And then the lady I taught with at Stanford was an economist, and she gave me some reading lists and got me going. And so I wound up, instead of with nothing to do, I still play golf and uh, exercise and do yoga, but you know, I do a little bit of work following Microsoft. I'm busy with USA Facts, with the basketball team, the Clippers, uh, and on our philanthropic stuff. Uh, as well, I just thought about maybe I should be an investor because you know everybody retires. Well, you invested in Twitter. Yeah, that was in my. Yeah. <laughs> I want to be an investor phase. Let's go invest in Twitter. It's it's a buy. Um, and that was about twenty five bucks a share ish. Something, yeah, something, something like higher that. than where it is now. <laughs> uh, let's leave it at that. But I learned two things out of the experience. Number one, it really takes a real eye and practice and diligence to be a good investor. And number two, I wasn't particularly interested in it. And so right. I said, okay, I'm not going to do investing. Is there any reason why you invested in Twitter in particular? Because I still think it's a very good brand with a, that it provides an important service. Uh, they haven't figured out how to monetize it. They haven't figured out how to make it easier to use, both of which I think are very important. But, you know, you think about it, it's still the best way to engage in some kind of communications with people, uh, with the population at large. And that's yeah. why you see it so important in the dissemination of information. Uh, I claim it's every bit as important as any other uh, form of distribution on the Internet today. But the problem is it's being run by a part-time CEO. You know all about that. It's you? got issues. But what it, yeah. it did convince me of I'm not an investor and I don't want to be an investor, which is nice. It's nice when you're retired to throw out the unlimited possibilities that seem yours. You started at Microsoft. You were employee number 30. Is that right? Correct. Today, it's, I think it's the third largest company in the world by market cap. By market cap, cap yeah. yeah. Number one in the world, I think, by market cap. Oh, was I it? Took over, number one or number two when I took over as CEO. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but that was in the heated dot-com days. Those were crazy days. So could we go back to 1980? Sure. If you knew Bill Gates from Harvard? Correct. Um, you guys lived down the hall or something? Yeah, the, sophomore yes. year, we were yeah. down the hall from each other. Exactly. If you could go back... Then, what would you tell your younger self about, you know, if you had to say one thing you wish you would have known or perhaps would have done differently looking forward in terms of, I mean, obviously Microsoft is Microsoft now, but is there something that you think looking back like, hmm, I wish I would have known that? No, quite to the contrary. The nice thing about being young is you don't know where all the bodies are buried and all the scary things and all the trouble you might get into. And yeah, I bet I'd have some words of wisdom for young Stevie or anybody. And, and some of that's probably valuable. The, the virtue of being new in a new industry when everything is being developed is you don't, you don't go through a lot of been there, done that. No, you don't self-censor on what's a good idea nearly as much. So... Sure, I might have a few things to say, but the most important thing I'd probably say is follow your own nose. Create your own path forward. It may fail because most startups do, but the startup that makes it isn't going to be a startup that follows a pattern that was completely developed someplace else. 
talk to everybody who do a lot of different things in a lot of different fields. Feel you know, uh, open to accepting and thinking th- through what ideas that you can borrow, you can take advantage of. And yet, you know, don't look for these wise, wizened old counselors who come and put their arm around you and say, well, you know, son or daughter, I could sure show you the ropes. Uh, I think that'd be dangerous, actually. Right. Did you ever think Microsoft wasn't going to work? Well, I thought Microsoft would work, but when you say work, what does that mean? Sure, I thought I'd have a job and the company would be around, I guess. Did I ever think Microsoft, you know, would be have a market capitalization of over half a trillion dollars? Absolutely not. Uh, no, I couldn't possibly have foreseen all the success uh, that the company has had. No. On the other hand, I didn't think the company's going to go out of business. Yeah. I did yeah. worry. This is funny. I did worry after I'd been with the company maybe five, six weeks that I dropped out of business school to be the bookkeeper of a 30-person company, and that didn't shine with the promise of a kid at Stanford Business School. So you're Stanford, you're going to be an MBA? Yeah, I was halfway through. Yeah. Why did you leave? Bill Bill Gates is the smartest guy I knew, and I knew the company had the leading position in some nascent industry. Did you understand computers then? I'd done a little programming in high school, but effectively you could say no if that would be closer to right than you know, I'd, right. I'd done some programming, not much. And when I told Bill I didn't drop out of school to be the thirty you know, bookkeeper for a 30-person company, he said, Steve, you don't get it. We're going to put a computer on every desk and in every home. Because the 19- company's motto for a long time, but oh, I really? swear he invented it uh, as a way to keep me from dro- dropping back into <laughs> business school. So 1980, I was three. I don't remember. I mean, you don't remember 1980 now? No, no, not particularly. Uh, By my math, since I'm a numbers guy, that means this is a big year for you. Forty. It's a very big year. There you go. Yeah, talking about longevity and whatnot. All of a sudden, (laughs) feeling my age. But for the millennial listeners, take us back to 1980. What what was the computer industry then? There were two things. Most of the computer industry was so-called mainframes and mini computers. Machines so big, most people can't even relate to them anymore. They were much, much slower than any phone you work today. They were room-sized in many cases. You program by looking at these funny screens that were just full of these block characters. The biggest company was IBM, and it was the only company that actually had much of a shadow. There were these little pipsqueaks nipping at it. There was a little bit of an independent software industry in the mainframe business, but not much. Most of the software came from IBM or some of the other manufacturers. And, you know, there was the first PCs were two or three years old when I joined, maybe three or four years old when I joined. Right. The Apple II came out in 1977 as an example. The first uh, Intel-powered machine came out. That's when Bill and Paul started the company, late 74, early 75. When did you realize this is actually going to, you guys might take over the world? Well, IBM came to visit us about doing their own PC, and IBM was everything, right? They were the big kahuna, and if they were going to do a PC, this thing could really be big. Now, I don't know what we thought big was, but it wasn't anywhere near as right. big as it is now. Uh, but when, that, was that, when was that? That would have been, I want to say, August of 80, maybe a couple months after I joined. Right. So you thought maybe you might grow to 40 or 50 people at that point. Nah, I knew actually that was the first big fight I had with Bill. The company was 30 people 
And I was pretty convinced we didn't have enough people to do the work. We'd need to add, I don't know, 15 or 20 people, whatever it was. And Bill said, Steve, I didn't ask you to drop out of school to bankrupt this company. And then finally we fought and fought. He says, prove you can hire one good guy, and then we'll worry about the next. Um, but we already needed to get the, at least 45 or 50 even before the expansion. Right, right. And how did you end up building your stake? You had kind of a, your first what – was your, what was your salary when you started? Bill and I negotiated. It was either forty or fifty thousand. I can't remember. Right. So how did you end up? Well, you the deal are now I the had l- with Bill was forty or fifty, whatever yeah. it was, and I uh, was to receive eight and three quarters percent of all. The company was not a corporation; it's a partnership. I was to get eight and three quarters percentage of all the profits above the base year when I joined. When I think profits were one million. So I was entitled to eight and three quarters percent of all the profit above, above, above a that. million. Wow. No, no, no. Here's what it was. I was to get 10% of all the profits over a million. That was the deal. In and perpetuity? In perpetuity. That's a pretty good. Well, then we changed it into equity in eight and three quarters percent of the company. Well, when did you do that? Uh, we did that in late, uh, no, sorry, June of 81. Oh, okay. That's when we became a corporation, and you can't have somebody getting a percentage of profit. So we took my 10% of everything over one, and I don't remember exactly the math. Bill and I fought about that a little bit too, and eventually <laughs> converted that instead of 10% of the equity because there was a baseline. Right. Now, of course, over time, that one and, th- one and a quarter mattered a lot, but who cares? Yeah. Uh, but we, cha- we changed that into eight and three quarters percent of the company. So on founding, uh, I had eight and three quarters percent of the company. Bill and Paul had the rest. And you held on to most of it for the. Or well, you, you're, I, still I have, the you're still I the largest held, shareholder, I, I think. I have certainly sold some shares and given away some shares over the year. I sold some to my mom and dad before we went public. I sold a few on the initial public offering. Uh, I probably had two or three liquidity events, maybe three liquidity events, best I can remember when share I was. Share sales. Yeah, share sales. Yeah. When I was at Microsoft, I did a big purchase. I bought back a bunch of shares in 1989. That was a good deal. I made a lot of money on that. Uh, and But then I had three sales. And then since I've left Microsoft, I've sold some and, and most notably given given some away. Right. But you're still the largest in individual shareholder, I believe. Yeah. Right? There's index funds who own more than I do. And there may be a mutual fund or two now who actually have more than I do. Right. Why do you keep hold of so much for so long? Well, you know, there royalty to some degree, belief in the company to some degree, and capital gains taxes to some degree. I mean, I don't need the money. So my theory is until I either know how to give it away or I need the money, why would I sell anything? Unless I thought the company was falling apart, which it is not. It's doing yeah. quite well. Yeah. So people could say, well, diversify. I have more than enough money I will never want with what I've already sold. So now it's really, in a sense, you could say I'm a steward for some combination of charity and my children. Uh, mostly, I hope charity, but you know, it's hard to, it turns out, my wife and I philanthropically focus in on kids who are born in circumstances where they probably don't have much of a shot at the American dream. And it's actually hard to find places philanthropically to invest a lot of money because most of the not-for-profits are relatively small and most of the major money happens to come from 
government programs, uh, which we can study through the lens of USA Facts. What's the point of USA Facts? The goal in USA Facts is to really emphasize, here's what government does, and here's the outcomes it is achieving. It is achieving them by taking resources, tax money, from these people, and it is spending them on these programs to achieve those outcomes. Then you get to decide, what outcomes do I want to see? Do I think the money should come from other people? Do I think I want less government involvement in certain areas, therefore we can contract the amount of money? But we tried to start with outcomes as the focus, and then in that context, look at money in and money out. This is your office here where we're sitting? We are sitting in my office. And there's no desk? There's no desk. What's up with that? Well, I don't sit and just like type a lot. <laughs> uh, if I type, there's plenty of tables right. to go use. So I'm mostly either talking to people in chairs right. or I lie down on this couch and I read because I like God. to uh, read lying down. I need to do that. This is, this is my kind of office. But here I see you have a make data great again hat. Yeah, that's a, that was a joke <laughs> that a guy who we work with philanthropically, he knows I'm all revved up on USA Facts. Yeah. Uh, you should make, take no political point no. of view out of the hat. Oh, okay. Uh, okay. The guy who gave it to me. I would say most people who are involved in social services focusing in on kids who are born into unfortunate circumstances uh, are concerned about what the president might mean to the programs that they think are important. So the guy who gave me the make data great again probably has some concerns about what might happen with some of these programs with the current administration, and he thought that was a a nice funny right. line. I've actually used that. Yeah. That line make data great. But so so why did you think uh we USA facts was necessary? Is it because we're kind of living in this fake news world and it was just trying to get to so we at least can all be talking about talking the same language, so to speak? Well, I started on USA facts long before we lived in the environment of fake news and you know blah blah blah. But the the topic became even more topical, so to speak, because of the current discussion. It is true, in my opinion, that people who are confronted with the same data will tend to see things more similarly than they thought they might, as opposed to when they're just having religious verbal arguments. That's way too much! That's not enough! People might be disagreeing about 2%, but they're trying to make... A principled discussion. And at the end of the day, yes, there are important principled discussions to have. But as long as you have people who have multiple multiple viewpoints, guess what? You're going to have to reach some kind of compromise. That's how it works. And guess what is going to happen? Ultimately, if you look at most of the decisions that are taken by government, there's a numeric implementation. We want more people in jail. We want less people in jail. We want to spend more money to support the poor or less. We want Social Security and Medicaid to be smaller or larger. We care about balancing the budget. There are some social issues. There are some regulatory issues which are not directly numeric. But a lot of what Congress does is allocate money. Same yeah, thing with, local, job, yeah. with state legislatures, it, allocating money to policy. And so looking at it through the lens of numbers, not a terrible thing to do. The religious arguments will persist. But ultimately, every time a budget's passed, people have agreed on a set of numbers reflecting some 
compromise around the priorities people see for society. And what was it? Was there one or two takeaways from all this? You know, it's it's three years spent compiling all of this data into one usable, understandable, presentable, searchable place. Is there anything that kind of came out at you like, whoa? Two things. Number one, really the distribution of who pays taxes and where it comes from is different than I had in mind. I would have told you I thought corporate income taxes were probably a much bigger percentage of the total. I would have underestimated the amount payroll tax accounts for of the total piece of the pie. I would have probably thought capital gains and estate taxes were a bigger part of the pie than they are. Whether that's a good or bad thing, everybody gets to decide on each of those things. I think I would have misestimated uh, how much money is really getting spent uh, on defense and how much, in a sense, the at least overestimated the, or underestimated. I would have by dollars. I probably would have been right, but the fact that the military by headcount is about thirty five percent smaller the number of war fighters than it was, I'm not going to remember exactly off the top of my head, but the shrinkage in the workforce of war fighters surprised me uh, quite a bit as an example. I would say that the state of health doesn't jive with the spending on health care. That's interesting. You know, if you take a look at drinking, you take away look at obesity, you take a look at all uh, longevity, to me, the more interesting thing actually than predicted age of life is actual age of death. What's the average age at which people die? And it has increased some over the last 20 or 30 years, but less than you might think when people talk about. Mm-hmm. But those, that's what health looks like. But health spending has you know, really just ramped. And I'd like to measure other things. I mean, our, one of the things we want to do now is to actually say what health measures are actually sucking up the money. Is it orthopedic work? Is it last year of life? You know, when people say chronic disease, you know what they really mean mostly? Depression, back pain, and diabetes. Really? Most people don't think chronic disease means back pain and means uh, uh, depression. But those are two of the, I think, when we get the numbers, we'll see. But I think those are two of the biggest expenses. But where really is the money going to understand, is it buying us higher quality of life while we're alive? Is it not working very well? Because other than not smoking, people aren't acting in a much more healthy fashion. So we have more work to do on this. But health, the apparent health of the population doesn't seem to match the rapid increase in health spending across all sources, government sources, private insurance, et cetera. Now, somebody can ask whether the healthcare system can be reworked to somehow get the kind of productivity gains that other industries get with competitive pressure. That's really separate from USA Facts, but a question probably somebody ought to look to ask. You've gone out of your way to say this is apolitical. This is just putting facts out there so we can all have a common discussion. But it is, by its nature, you know, it is injected into the political discussion. And then you have lots of other people from the tech industry, whether it's Reed Hoffman. You have Mark Zuckerberg. Everybody thinks he's going to run for president. Who knows? But do you think there will be a growing role or there should be a growing role? for the tech industry and the tech elite. Because if you look at it now, it's the top five companies are all tech companies. And it's kind of, this is the era of that. And it does seem that there is a kind of a blossoming, if you will, of people who have done very well by the industry are now kind of putting their tentacles into politics. I don't think there's particularly a role 
more for people out of the tech industry than any place else. I think what the tech industry has created a lot of very rich people who can entertain ideas other than working in full-time regular jobs, which is harder to do if you've had been less fortunate than many in the tech industry, not only at the very top, but even other roles in the tech industry. So there is time and there is money amongst some tech people, like, like me, so there's an opportunity to contribute in different ways. Do I think that makes any of us sort of qualified particularly to actually be politicians? Not particularly. Uh, decision makers? Not particularly. I mean, I would tell you the day I retired from Microsoft, I really didn't understand much about government. I understand a whole <laughs> lot more, but I put in, you know, three years of hard study at this stage. Right. So right. I'm, I'm not a... So you're not running for president? No, I'm not running for political <laughs> office. Never. <laughs> I'm not even running to be on the water district for our small town. <laughs> right, no, right. I'm not running. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. And the Clippers. I'm a huge basketball fan, and this is where the podcast might go awry. Because I'm a lifelong Warriors fan, so you're allowed to stay in the office for another two <laughs> minutes before I come over the table at you. <laughs> so when you you buy the Clippers for two billion dollars, which is not an insignificant amount of money, no, it was a large amount of money for anybody. When you write a check like that, are you like, yikes, that's a lot of money, or is it just kind of like, oh, this is actually, is it? I guess my question is, is that a business decision? Or is it a is it a passion decision? Is it both? I mean, it's both. But yeah. it's both. But here's a way to think about it. So yeah, is it a big deal to write a check that big? Sure. But is it a big deal to buy a big stake in Twitter? They're both large amounts of money. And guess what? They're both really investments. It's not like the Clippers all of a sudden they wear out and they go away. It's not like buying a boat. Or a house, it's a business, just yeah. like buying, making an investment in a publicly traded company. It's not liquid, but eventually it'll get sold. Uh, it might make a little money, might lose a little money over the time that probably going to make money the way the, the, the way the rights and the, the probably look. Think of it as about break even. You know, some teams lose money, some teams make money. You know, if you're in a great market like San Francisco and you have a great team as Golden State has had, they'll make a bunch of money. But you know, most teams. You know, 
a bunch lose money, a bunch make money, and that's why we have some revenue sharing, and still some teams lose money. So think about it as break even or a slight negative over the time, and then you sell the thing, and the thing, like any other business, might have appreciated. Could go down in value, but it might have appreciated. My basic theory is it'll appreciate uh, better than an S&P index fund. Why? Because it'll get bought from stock, and it'll get bought by people whose stock have performed well. That's who's going to buy these things. So I think it's like an S&P index fund with maybe a slightly negative dividend. No dividend. But courtside seats. With courtside seats. (laughs) With courtside seats. I guess you could say that. Uh, And in terms of the technology angle, is it harder to get people to come to the games now that people have big screen TVs and these entertainment systems and it's... It seems like that might be the sports might be the last bastion of. I just think they're different different experiences. Yeah. It, look, if you want raw emotion, you know you'll get some of that in your living room. It's not like being in a stadium. It just isn't. We only have to sell nineteen thousand tickets a game, and LA, our market, is sixteen and a half million people in LA are within our territory. We got to sell nineteen thousand. We should be able to get that done. Yeah. yeah. Even though the, the, the team has always been kind of the ugly stepbrother of the L.A. Lakers. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful team. Uh, <laughs> but, yes, has never won a championship and is in L.A. So I will accept that. I will not accept your other pejorative <laughs> words, Danny. Back to technology. Yahoo. You tried to buy them nine years ago? Roughly? 2008. Eight. Yeah. yeah, that sounds right. For about $45 Maybe billion. Maybe late 2007, actually, I think. $45 billion-ish. Is that what it was? Roughly. Yeah, 33 bucks a share. And they just finally uh, were put out of their misery by Verizon for $4.5 billion. No, 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 no. Much more. Much, 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 much more. The business we would have bought would have been worth well over what we were offering to pay. You're forgetting the the China part. The oh, China Alibaba. Japan, we were buying the whole thing. Right. Yahoo Japan, the Alibaba stake, and the operating company. So we, we would have made out on all of that. And, oh, by the way, we would have captured the synergies in folding the two search engines together, which we did not do. That was the driving force. Force. Yeah. And we would a lot of the value capture on that went to the Yahoo shareholders, not to Microsoft, because we paid them such a high so-called traffic acquisition cost. If you look at it now, we would have done very, very well on the deal, right? At the price we were prepared to offer, right? And a lot of that, I mean, I at the time, if you told me most, you know, a lot of that was going to come in the stake in Alibaba, I would have underestimated the amount that would have come from Alibaba. And probably overestimated, but not as dramatically as you might think, the amount that would have come from buying Core Yahoo. Right. Yeah, it was 2007 because it was before things yeah. went to hell. The stock market went to hell with the with the financial crisis. Yeah. We made our offer, and then things fell apart. And the fact they turned us down did help us a little bit. We right. we might have looked silly buying at a pre pre market crash price. Biggest mistake. Well, I think I've chronicled that. I, I would have gotten us into the hardware business sooner, which would have facilitated our proper entry into the phone business. Going into mobile, essentially. Not going in. The way you went in. It's one thing. I mean, look, we had a product called Windows Mobile. We did. 
the problem wasn't that we didn't have a product. The problem was we didn't have a product that we actually could see in the market, get feedback on, fix, because we were so remote that we didn't have an integrated picture. And so I think the key mistake was not building the talent to do a hardware product and therefore being way too indirect to fix our software. All these things are hardware-software combination. Right. But I would say that, and we also missed a cycle with Windows Mobile, and that's a cycle where uh, Android got popular. So those yeah. two things, I would say. And so PCs to mobile, that was a huge shift. Now everybody has a mobile. And, and everybody has a PC. Does everybody have a PC? Not everybody, but no, not everybody has a phone either. More people have phones, obviously, than yeah. PCs. But anybody who wants to get work done also has a PC. What do you think the next shift is? PCs to mobile to dot, dot, dot. You remember, I'm three years out of Microsoft, so you know, I'm just sort of one of these oh, old you're, you're just a doddery still, old retiree. I'm just one yeah. of these old retirees <laughs> who want to pontificate about the business. I still think, believe heavily in something I believed before I left, which is the notion of machines that can learn to understand the world and understand you and your preferences will serve you better. Now, those machines will need to be able to see things hear things uh, from you and from the world at large. So there's definitely some kind of wearable component to it. But uh, that kind of, call it portable extension to what you can do that sees the world, understands the world digitally as well as physically. Some kind of... Uh, think of it as a wearable... Personal assistant Yeah, it's a personal assistant meets wearable device. Right. That what do you th- how do you think that manifests itself? Well, okay. Probably in your glasses. Right. Right. I mean, I would expect, because that lets you signal to your technology what you're interested in. Yeah. You, what you look at in life is generally something you're interested in. Yeah. But that'll be a piece. It'll be connected to a whole bunch of back-end infrastructure that can process preference. And so it, it was machine learning when I left. People prefer to call it AI again now. AI yes, is out of yes. But it's all the same yeah. stuff. People yeah. like to keep putting sexy words on top of it. The ability to learn, to recognize the world and recognize you and your intention, married with devices that can see and hear in addition to uh, the devices that we have today, that's where I think the future lies. Any sense of how... Well, we started such a project when it was in Microsoft. They're still working on it. You know, HoloLens, HoloLens is right. an attempt in that direction, and we'll see where Microsoft takes it. Um, you know, I see what's in the market, but I don't see what the roadmap really looks like anymore. Right. Great. I think those are my questions. My pleasure. Enjoy um, doing it. Dan. And I wish you no luck in the, in the upcoming NBA season. <laughs> oh, come on, dude. <laughs> you can at least you can at least wish me luck in the in the seventy eight games when we're not playing the Warriors. My God, man. My, a little a rivalry is a rivalry. When we go in there and and do our damage at Golden State, then you can not like me. And that is it for another episode. A very big thank you to Steve for taking the time. I am now back on a plane to San Francisco. Sadly, there was no room on Steve's private jet. Such is life. Before you go, though, please go to Apple Podcasts. Give us a rating and review. We've been getting some really good feedback, great feedback. But we could always use more, and it really does help. So please take a moment and do that. And in the meantime, of course, you can find me in the newspaper every Sunday at the Sunday Times, online at thetimes.co.uk, and on Twitter at Danny Fortson. Until next time, thanks very much.
station. iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.